Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we bring to you yet again a guest speaker talk from the bi-monthly meeting of the Whitechapel Society 1888. And what you are about to hear is February 2017's guest speaker, M.P. Priestley, the author of the new book, One Autumn in Whitechapel, and his talk is entitled, Jack the Ripper, A Modern Day Investigation. So without further ado, let's turn it over to the Master of Ceremonies, Ruby Vitorino, coming to you from the Chamberlain Hotel in the East End of London, introducing Mick Priestley. So our speaker tonight is Mick Priestley, and to introduce Mick, this is what he had to say about himself. I have had a lifetime interest in true crime and serial killers. Jack the Ripper, Zodiac and Richard Ramirez. Mm -hmm. So Mick, tell me, when you take a a girl out on a first date, how long long do you wait until you tell them about your, your into serial killers? If she's not into serial killers, we won't get on anyway. Ah, right. So, well, it shouldn't come to a surprise to anyone because Mick is actually um, a tour guide for East End Tours and uh, his daily job is taking visitors to murder sites. Uh, Mick has been interviewed many times for the radio. He's talked uh, to the States, South Korea, Brazil and Iran. And I hope you haven't um, passed on too many um, grisly tips to would-be serial killers. But the thing that most excited me um, about Mick... It wasn't the beard. No, it was the book. (laughs) It was the book. One Autumn in Whitechapel, which I'm currently reading and which you can buy here, has a brand new suspect. And I confess, when I'm reading your book, I went straight to the back of the book because I had to read all about that first. And I'll let you reveal his name. But it is uh, very fascinating. I think it's a very good uh, suspect and it's very well supported. Anyway, we'll let everybody listen to you now and not me. So over to Mick Priestley. Right, thanks uh, for coming down tonight, everybody. It's, uh, it's nice to see everybody here, so many familiar faces and some people I'm uh, yet to get to meet. Uh, right, tonight uh, I'm going to be um, giving my presentation and I'm going to be drawing on a number of sources. Uh, among other sources, uh, I'm going to be drawing on those of uh, John Douglas, uh, Robert Ressler, Roy Hazelwood uh, and others, primarily of the, the FBI uh, Behavioral Science Unit, which is in Quantico in Virginia. Now, I'm pretty sure everybody here is aware of the the canonical five murders, as well as uh, those of Martha Tabram, Alice McKenzie, and Francis Coles, and that Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were murdered on the same night, so I'll be able to uh, save time by not explaining that. Um, I don't think I need to explain uh, to anybody here either that an awful lot of stuff has been written about uh, Jack the Ripper in the time since the murders took place. As a result of this, uh, a large number of wild theories and inaccurate claims have been accepted as fact, and what I'd like to do is address a number of these wild theories and sort of get back to the basics of the case, uh, if you see what I mean, because uh, I'm not really a, a conspiracy kind of guy. Uh, bits of the speech might be a little heavy, uh, but I'm going to be unapologetic about that because I feel it's important to demonstrate what sort of person the Whitechapel murderer really was. Uh, I think we're going to have the first slide now, I think. 
I'll leave that there. That, that's actually, uh, this is a theme that I'm going to kind of follow throughout the speech, but just for the sake of uh, reference, that's actually taken from the time from the medical news in 1888. So the idea that Jack the Ripper was sexually motivated isn't a new thing. This is something that uh, medical professionals were saying at the time. Now, I'd like to uh, address a number of victims, uh, the manner in which they were killed and the motives of the man who did it. And I'll also be putting forward uh, my suspect, um, who, who's been largely ignored the entire time. Now, most people believe uh, that there were only uh, five victims, uh, the canonical five, if you like, or choose to believe that the other uh, victims, Martha Tabram, Alice McKenzie, and Francis Coles, are uncertain somehow, despite the fact that almost all of the investigators at the time were convinced that they were, in fact, victims of the same man. Uh, Edmund Reed, for example, believed that there were nine murders in total, uh, with Francis Coles being the last. Uh, interviewed by Lloyd's Weekly newspaper in 1912, I've got a slide here as well, uh, there he is with his hunting dog and his gun, looking very suave in later life. Uh, he believed there were nine murders in total. He said that one was in the city of London, one was in Bethnal Green, four in Spitalfields, two in St. George's, and only one in Whitechapel. So I guess it's up for debate who, he, uh, who his ninth victim might have been. Another common belief is that the murderer might have had surgical skill, uh, but this is largely because of Dr. Phillips's comments uh, following Annie Chapman's post-mortem. Dr. Phillips was also shown to be wrong about a, a number of other things uh, throughout the case, and no other doctor ever agreed that the killer had surgical skill or that he had had any design on any particular organ either. It's worth mentioning that many other known serial killers uh, have also extracted body parts, including kidneys, and didn't have any medical training either. Now, uh, one example is uh, Sacramento vampire Richard Chase. Uh, he was sentenced to death in May 1979 for the murders of six people. Uh, Chase had shot his victims. He drank the blood. Uh, he had sex with the bodies. He removed the body parts. At one scene, both of the victims' kidneys had been removed. <laughs> I've got a heckler. <laughs> both of the victims' uh, kidneys had been removed. Uh, a bladder had been taken out, and he, he drank a bloody yogurt container that he found in the kitchen. Uh, at other crime scenes, he'd actually taken organs away with them, uh, taken them home, blended them at home, and drank them. That's why they call him the vampire. He was a strange man. Uh, when arrested, he was a drug addict, with an alcoholic with a long history of mental illness, and he had absolutely no medical training uh, whatsoever. Another example uh, would be uh, this man. This is Sean Vincent Gillis. He's the Baton Rouge Ripper. He was convicted of eight murders in 2007 in Louisiana. He'd amputated limbs from his victims and would use them to please himself with at home. Uh, there's also an ongoing uh, series of murders across Africa at the moment, known as the Muti murders, which are all the medicine murders, uh, where victims are killed and organs extracted to be sold on for the supposed medicinal benefits. The murderers aren't medical men, they're just people uh, not phased by committing murders who are after making some easy money. Now, in modern cases, uh, when a crime is discovered, the different characteristics of the scene are um, recorded so that they can be analysed. Now, often, not counting DNA or other evidence, uh, repetitive characteristics displayed across a number of crime scenes can be used to link a series together and indeed identify one individual as the perpetrator of all of them. An act of murder can also be broken down into three separate parts as well. The, the MO, uh, the ritual, and the signature. The, the MO is essentially the plan that the killer acts out in order to achieve his goal. It is a learned behavior that evolves as an offender gains experience and confidence by committing more crimes. With Jack the Ripper, for his example, uh, it would appear that he meets a woman in the street, 
uh, offers them money, and then acts like a nice guy until he gets to the spot where he knows the murder will actually begin. From there, the victim is quickly overpowered, uh, strangled, and, and has her throat cut. Ritual and signature uh, are fantasy-driven, repetitive crime scene behaviours that have been found to occur in serial sexual homicide. Uh, both the ritual and the signature are seemingly unnecessary behaviours uh, at a sexually motivated crime scene that go above and beyond what is necessary to simply commit the crime. They are unique to each offender, uh, based and derived from the individual's fantasies, and can be important enough uh, to them to make them take extra risks at the crime scene, such as uh, spending more time uh, at the spot and increasing his risk of capture. Such behaviour isn't a, a new thing either. It's, uh, it's been long recorded in the history of crime. In his 1886 book, uh, Psychopathia Sexualis, uh, Dr. V Richard von Kraft Ebing uh, noted uh, numerous cases in which murder victims had had their the hands placed together, uh, the mouths filled with dirt, uh, they'd been posed in various positions, or had objects stolen from uh, them that were of little value uh, after they were dead. Listen, I've got another slide here as well. Uh, such crime scene behaviours, I've printed that so small in here, such crime scene behaviours, which more often than not are repetitive, have been found to be an outgrowth of the perpetrator's deviant sexual fantasies, wherein the murder and the repetitive acts are part of the offender's sexual arousal pattern. These are the parts of the crime uh, that excite the killer the most. And with Jack the Ripper, is, is mutilations or his ritual. He kills his victims, then he stays at the scene to act this out. As the murders continued, uh, his uh, violence and mutilations continue to evolve, but such behaviour is dependent on a number of other circumstances. The killer might not have had the time uh, he wished to act out his ritual fully. He may have been disturbed, or he may have been unhappy with the crime scene. As such, ritualistic factors uh, may vary from crime scene to crime scene, and in some cases might not even be present at all. As I've got another uh, quote here. The ritual may not occur in every crime in a series because of several factors, such as time availability, the offender's mood, and various external circumstances that could dilute, modify, or interrupt the commission of a crime. The ritual is the part of the crime that interests the killer the most, and the more murders he commits, uh, the more the ritual will evolve along with his fantasies. It's often what they call an escalating level of violence. Alternative, um, alternatively, Depending on the circumstances under which the crime is committed, the killer uh, may not act out all of the parts uh, of this, depending on the, the crime scene, the, the location, the time, and whether or not he's disturbed and forced to flee from the scene. Signature factors are repetitive, ritualistic factors that are displayed repetitively across a number of uh, crime scenes. These particular factors remain constant uh, throughout a series of crimes. Uh, oh, sorry, no, skip. <laughs> sorry, I was randomly waving now. We'll get to him in a moment. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but uh, signature factors don't change. They remain uh, stimulating and arousing to the killer over time and remain constant. They are unique to each offender and can be used to link a series of offences together. Right. <laughs> right, for example... There are numerous of examples uh, of signature behaviour from serial sexual killers in crime history. This guy is one example. This is 57-year-old Charles Albright. He's a lot older than uh, most uh, murders of this type will be. He's kind of an exception to the rule. Uh, he was convicted in 1991, uh, and he's known as the Dallas Eyeball Collector. Uh, <laughs> what he would do after acting out his uh, MO and committing his crime, he would remove his victim's eyeballs and take them with him from the crime scenes. He had an obsession with eyes that he'd uh, developed through a, a prior uh, obsession with taxidermy. After he was arrested, he was noted that he would sit in his cell in prison and obsessively uh, sketch drawings of women's eyes. Uh, Albert DeSalvo... 
Uh, it's believed by most people to be the Boston Strangler. Some people have a bit of controversy with that. Uh, but the Boston Strangler victims were all found nude and posed with their legs spread wide apart. Uh, after strangling his victims with their own uh, clothing, uh, usually uh, a bra or stockings, uh, he would tie the garments in a bow around the neck uh, before he fled the scene. Uh, Night Stalker Richard Ramirez, he's one of three people referred to as the Night Stalker. There was Delroy Grant was the uh, Night Stalker. There's also another Night Stalker from Sacramento. But Richard Ramirez, uh, he'd scrawled pentagrams across his victims' bodies at uh, the crime scenes and a number of his offences. He believed that uh, Satan was watching over him as he committed the murders. And another pentagram was scrawled on the dashboard of the car he was driving. One victim actually had a pentagram drawn in lipstick on a thigh after she was dead and Ramirez fled the scene. Jack the Ripper, similarly, displays a number of signature factors and unique crime scene characteristics. I'm going to give you a, a moment to look at this. Uh, it's a table of... <laughs> it's a table uh, of the crime scene and signature characteristics compiled from the original crime scene reports. So let you have a look at that. Give me a moment. Uh, all eight of the Whitechapel murder victims were killed in the same area with the same type of weapon. All had similar throat injuries. Uh, Martha Tabram had been repeatedly stabbed in the throat, but all the rest had had her throats cut across, including Alice McKenzie, who actually was reported as having two stab and slash injuries uh, to the left side of her throat, showing that the killer had attacked from the right-hand side, as he was reported as having done at every other crime scene, with the exception of Mary Kelly. A number of other signature characteristics are displayed at the murder scenes of Alice McKenzie and Francis Coles. The, the seemingly excessive uh, cutting, stabbing, and mutilating displayed by the Whitechapel murder uh, the, at the Whitechapel murder scenes, rather, is considered in a modern context to be a sexual perversion or a paraphilia and a chronic and progressive mental disorder. In the event of a sexually motivated murder, the, the cutting, mutilation, and overkill type wound structures will be directed towards parts of the body that the killer personally finds arousing. As such, uh, the violence is often uh, directed towards, um, uh, among other areas, the, the genitals, the, the rectum, the breast, the neck, the throat of the victims, as the, the killer would appear to have done throughout the Whitechapel offences. And this type of offence is categorised as a lust murder. <laughs> Next one, yeah. Right. Now, a lust murder is a, oh, print that small as well, a sexually motivated offence in which the offender stabs, cuts, pierces, or mutilates the sexual regions or organs of the victim's body. Um, it's predicated on the obsessive fantasy of the offender. This obs um, excessive mutilation, overkill, and penetration of the skin is also to de defined as peakerism, which is referred to as the sexual desire to pierce the skin. Lust murderers uh, have a compulsive need to act out their fantasies with the victims and the, the victims' bodies. And as such, it's not just enough for these types of killers to simply uh, just kill. Excessive stab wounds and other acts committed after death, such as inserting objects in the body, cannibalism, blood drinking, necrophilia might also be apparent at the scene, alongside posing and propping of the body as the killer creates and acts out his own private sexual fantasy. The ripper victims, for example, were all found with the arms and the bodies posed uh, the clothes pulled up in order to expose them with their legs apart. All eight of the victims also showed a number of other similar characteristics. Uh, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Mary Kelly, Alice McKenzie and Francis Coles were all found with one hand flexed across the chest, having been posed that way after they were killed. Uh, Martha Tabram, Mary Ann Nichols and Catherine Eddowes all had both hands by the sides. Every victim was found on a back with her eyes wide open and a head to the side. 
Uh, and every victim, with the exception of Elizabeth Stride and Francis Coles, were found with the clothes pulled up and the legs apart. Francis Coles's legs uh, had actually been crossed at the feet. Mary Nichols, uh, Elizabeth Stride and Francis Coles all had the hats removed from the heads and placed beside them. Uh, the crime scenes of Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes showed the same smearing of blood and other uh, body substances. Martha Tabram's post-mortem showed she'd been violently strangled before death, as had Annie Chapman. Mary Nichols had bruising to her face and a, uh, a jawline, which is consistent with strangling, as did Catherine Eddowes. Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were also found to have bruises or pressure marks. Uh, it was referred to across the chest and the stomach, which are also uh, considered today to be consistent with strangling and or with the killer having had his weight on them at the time he committed the offence. Francis Coles had an injury to the back of her head, which was seen as having come from contact with the ground. Uh, in a modern case, this is also considered to be uh, a strangling injury. The killer hitting the victim's head against the floor as, as he uh, strangles her. Alice McKenzie uh, was the only victim in the entire case seemingly not showing any signs of strangulation. Uh, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Kelly and Francis Coles were all found to have objects uh, or body parts arranged around them, be it the, uh, the hat by the side, bodily organs, buttons in the, in the Mitre Square case. Francis Coles also had money, uh, which was seemingly hers, placed behind a pipe in Swallow Gardens uh, near where she lay. Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Kelly uh, were all found to have blood or faecal matter in one case smeared across the bodies at the crime scene as well. At the Elizabeth Stride murder scene in Dutfield's yard, she hadn't been exposed or mutilated, but she'd been posed on her back with one hand lying across her chest, her head to the side, her eyes wide open, uh, blood smeared across her forearm and her wrist. Uh, cashews, the, the breath mints, were uh, scattered on the ground around her. A hat had been removed and placed behind her head on the floor, and the packet of cashews had actually been placed into the hand that lay by her side. These are the same signature characteristics uh, present at the other crime scenes and the, the posing of body, the, the hand flex over the chest, the arranging of articles at the, and then the smearing of blood. These are the factors that the killer feels he needs to act out at the scenes in order to achieve his arousal. Many people believe that the killer was interrupted on Burner Street, uh, explaining why he hadn't uh, performed his mutilations or even that perhaps the killer in Dutfield's yard wasn't even the same killer at all. But, as noted by uh, Roy Hazelwood, I've got that uh, quote again, the ritual... Uh, may not occur in every crime in a series because of several factors, such as time availability, the offender's mood, and various external circumstances that could dilute, modify, or interrupt the commission of a crime. The killer in Dutfield's yard hadn't acted out his time-consuming mutilation ritual, but he had taken the time to perform his signature characteristics that would have been most important to him. He may have been unhappy with the crime scene, uh, he may have committed the crime impulsively, uh, and due to circumstances he hadn't planned for, felt intimidated and fled the scene, as it happens, uh, Dr. Blackwell was the first uh, doctor on the scene of that particular murder. He lived nearby at 100 Commercial Road. He arrived at 1.16 in the morning and stated that the murder had taken place between 20 and 30 minutes before he got there, seemingly placing the time of death between 12.46 and 12.56. Uh, Dr. Phillips noted on the post-mortem table that she would have bled to death comparatively slowly on account of vessels on one side only of the neck being cut and the artery not completely severed. Uh, this would explain why the blood was still reported as flowing from her neck when Louis Deemschutz made the discovery at about a, about a minute past one, which is between five and 15 minutes after doctors on the scene agreed that the murder had actually taken place, and it therefore it appears that the killer wasn't interrupted at all. He could have been gone for 10 minutes or more before the discovery was made. 
Interestingly, in that case as well, uh, witness James Brown reported seeing a woman who he believed to be Elizabeth Stride talking uh, to a man by the wall of the board school opposite in a black coat that came nearly to his heels. At 12.45am, perhaps only a minute before Blackwell determined the murder might have taken place, she was telling him, no, not tonight, maybe some other night, apparently turning him down. And this was the only murder south of Commercial Road until the murder of Francis Coles nearly two and a half years later. He might have been incensed by a refusal of him uh, and committed the murder uh, impulsively to avoid having his fantasy shattered. In a modern context, a refusal of him in that manner would be what is referred to as a triggering factor. Now, as it happens, uh, the eight victims as well, uh, it would appear, weren't the only uh, people attacked in the area by the same men. I've got some slides for this later on, but not not right now. They're they're going to come in at the end. Uh, A number of other women actually came forward to police uh, during the time the murders uh, were committed to report having been attacked by a strange man in the same manner on the streets of the Whitechapel area. Uh, They're all pretty obscure, so I'll I'll mention a a few of them. But like I said, I'll have the slides in a bit. Uh, The first would appear to have been a woman called Emily Walter, who was, uh, she went forward to police to say that she'd entered a house on Hanbury Street on the same night as Annie Chapman's murder. She believed it to be number 29, uh, about three hours before Annie Chapman's murder took place. The following day, the police issued uh, a statement stating that the man she'd seen uh, was indeed the man that they were looking for, uh, clearly stating that they'd taken the report seriously. Emily had described the man as being five foot seven, rather dark beard and moustache, wearing a short dark jacket, dark vest and trousers, black scarf and black felt hat, and stated that he spoke with a foreign accent. He'd also, it was reported, he conned her with fake coins. He'd given her what she thought were two sovereigns, and then later on, when he'd ran away, she realised that there were actually two polished brass medals that he'd given her. Newspapers on the 30th of September, which is obviously the, the day of the double murder, uh, were reporting of a homeless woman on Dorset Street who'd been attacked by a man who, uh, like with Emily Walder, had given her fake coins. This time they'd been machined around the edge to look more valuable. He had a dark moustache and a freeze blue overcoat, which is a, a type of suede. Three days later, uh, reports were then being printed of another attack in a by-turning off Commercial Street. The attacker this time had tripped her up and pulled a knife but ran uh, like in the Dorset Street report, after she'd struggled and screamed and he, he'd run away. That victim had actually had an arm cut and had had to go to the London Hospital on Whitechapel Road to have it stitched back together. It's interesting that uh, Emily Walter and the, the woman on Dorset Street both reported having been given fake coins that were tampered with, machined around the edge, polished brightly to look more valuable, because Edmund Reed stated at Alan McKenzie's inquest both that a coin had been passed to her as a coin of higher value and that Annie Chapman's scene had displayed similar coins in the yard. The rest of the, the victims were found with no money at all. Whatever he'd given them uh, to accompany them to wherever it was he was taking them, he'd clearly taken it back after he killed them if he'd given them anything. Now, I'd also like to talk uh, at this point about the difference between organised and disorganised killers. Uh, a killer can be d- determined as organised or disorganised through a, a study of his crime scene characteristics. So I'll, I'll start with organised killers. Here we go. The organised offender has an average or better than average IQ but often works at occupations below his abilities. He's often found to be sexually competent, he may spend a great deal of time hunting for his preferred victims and is likely to use restraints and or leave a crime scene that reflects complete control. An organised killer, uh, he might live with his partner or even with a family, uh, drive a car that's in good condition and he'll be, he'll be socially competent, not attracting the attention or suspicion of those around him. I'll give a, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer 
is an example of an organised killer. He had an above-average IQ, uh, but he worked a menial job in a chocolate factory. He was described as being popular, uh, was reported as having many different sexual partners. Uh, his MO was well planned, uh, his crime scenes used a variety of restraints, and he planned his method of uh, ensuring complete control over his victim. Uh, Dennis Rader is the BTK killer from Wichita, Kansas. He's another example of an organised killer. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, living, he lived with his unsuspecting family. Uh, he was respected by many through his work with the church and in the community. Uh, he has an above-average IQ. He lived in a nice house with a good car, in good condition. He would arrive at his crime scenes uh, fully prepared, restrained his victims, left crime scenes, demonstrated complete control. Another example uh, is John Gacy. Uh, he had an above-average IQ. He was married. Uh, he was respected within his community. He ran his own business. He worked in politics. He had his own house and car in good condition, and he used restraints and handcuffs again to torture and control his victims. Now, both Jeffrey Dahmer and John Gacy, from those examples as well, uh, had also made great plans as to how to dispose of the body uh, of the victims and, uh, and avoid detection. This forward planning is uh, a, sight, uh, a sign of their organised method and the steps they've taken, having planned them meticulously to avoid getting caught. A disorganised killer, by contrast, is typically of average or below intelligence, uh, a loner, sexually incompetent, uh, with a poor work history. Uh, disorganised killers act impulsively, under stress, usually within their own local area. They attack the victims with a blitz style of attack to quickly overpower them and typically leave the bodies of the victims in full view. They leave crime scenes that appear... Uh, in contrast to those of organised offenders, uh, random and sloppy and disorganised, having committed the crimes with little or no thought as to how they actually intended to get away with it. Richard Chase, who I mentioned earlier, the, the blood-drinking vampire guy, is an example of a disorganised killer. Uh, his victims were found pretty much at random. He would walk around town trying doors until he found one that was open, then simply invite himself in. He'd have a 22 in one pocket and a butcher's knife in the other. Um, his crimes were often uh, committed with objects as well, though, that he found at the scene, like the, the drinking of blood with a yogurt pot he'd found in the woman's kitchen. His crime scenes were chaotic. Uh, his IQ was below average. He'd been, uh, and he'd taken very minimal precautions to ensure that he, he wouldn't actually be arrested. He, he regularly wore blood-stained clothes. When he was walking around, his flat was filthy. There was blood on the walls, dead animals and body parts throughout it. When, they, when he was actually arrested, the police turned up at the door. He answered the door, covered in blood, with body parts in the house, and seemed oblivious to what the problem was. Uh, Otis Tool uh, is another example of a, a disorganised killer. He had a, what a handsome man. But he, uh, <laughs> he, had a, he had a very low IQ. Uh, he left sloppy and disorganised crime scenes. He'd not planned his offences adequately uh, to ensure that he would actually get away with them. He's referred to as the Jacksonville Cannibal. He's from Florida. Uh, at his first murder scene, he actually picked up a man for sex and then ran him down and killed him with a car when he started to get nervous. It clearly wasn't something he'd put a great deal of effort into. But um, there's a third category of sexual killer, though, and this is the category that the Whitechapel murderer falls into. Uh, it shows both evidence of organised, premeditated behaviour in his planning and of disorganised, impulsive behaviour at his crime scenes. This makes him what is referred to as a mixed offender. He shows many examples of pre-planning, for example, in his crimes. His victims, uh, for example... Uh, were all of similar age, class, dress and occupation. Uh, though Mary Kelly and Francis Coles uh, were younger than the rest, they, they still matched the uh, other characteristics of both each other and of the rest of the victims. Every victim, with the exception of Mary Kelly, who was murdered in a bed, interestingly enough, was also dressed in black at the time he killed her. Uh, the, vic the, the killer, rather, was repeatedly and exclusively hunting women of the same characteristics, and this is known as a victim profile. Uh, it shows pre-planning, 
as while he would seem to have met his uh, victims by chance in the street and committed his murders recklessly, it would appear that he'd waited until a certain type of victim presented herself along with a suitable crime scene location. He also arrived at his scenes with his own murder weapon and took it back with him afterwards. He took trophies and souvenirs from his crime scenes because he knew it would give him pleasure to uh, relive the offences afterwards. Signature characteristics at his crime scene also show that he previously rehearsed the murder in his mind and fantasised over it. Something that he'd seen, uh, read or heard about in particular had influenced him and it's through these mutilations and the, and the signature, the relevance of which were known only unto him, that he would be able to feel fully sexually gratified from his offences. Interestingly enough, uh, here's one. This is actually uh, a very common carving of the Virgin Mary from the late 1800s. Um, it's, uh, it seems interesting enough that she's lying exactly as Annie Chapman was, as Elizabeth Stride was, as Mary Kelly was. She's on her back, she's got her head to the side, hand across the chest. It's a, a random shot in the dark, I suppose, but that, for example, could be seen as something that might perhaps have influenced them. Dr Forbes Winslow, as it happens as well, uh, who was uh, very uh, active within the case at the time, was also widely reported uh, in his belief that the killer, he felt, was, quote, labouring under religious mania and that when he was caught, he would be shown to have been acting on an imaginary command from heaven. So that's just a, a random possibility there, I suppose. The killer, though, also displays evidence of disorganised behaviour at the moment he commits his crimes. His murders would appear to have been committed spontaneously in very high-risk locations that were very dangerous for himself. While having fantasised over the murders he wished to commit and how he intended to commit them, and what type of, and which people he would like to commit them against, uh, he seems to have made no plan at all as to how he intended to get away with it. This is impulsive and reckless behaviour, and could suggest that his murders were committed only when he was in a, a certain frame of mind. Um, stress, frustration, depression, anger, other factors may have made him feel that way, and such recklessness and spontaneity could also suggest mental illness. His apparent disregard for the risks he was taking also suggests that he may have been under the influence of drugs or alcohol, at the time he committed his murders. Despite having fantasised about his offences before he committed them, once an opportunity appeared, it was sheer luck alone that allowed him to get away with them. To have done this, and yet repeatedly escape without any apparent complications through the darkened back streets in the middle of the night also shows that the killer was very familiar with his surroundings. Now, so I suppose the, the big question is, who would do this kind of thing? Now, an awful lot of suspects have been put forward, but usually on flimsy evidence or apparently no evidence at all in some cases. So I'm hoping I can put forward a, a suspect here who might sound a little more plausible. Albert William Backett was born in the fourth quarter of 1860 in Whitechapel, uh, the son of German immigrant Johann, John, and Georgine, Georgina Backett. He was baptised in Whitechapel as Wilhelm Albert, Albert Backett on Christmas Day 1860, and he had three sisters. Uh, a fourth sister had been born in 1867, but died as a baby, and is recorded as being not years old at the time of her death. He grew up in the area, and the 1871 census shows the Backett family living at number 49 Duke Street, which is the, the X on the map there, obviously, uh, opposite St. Bodolph's Church, seven doors uh, south of where Joseph Lavender made his witness sighting on the night of Catherine Eddowes' murder. Lavender, as it happened, uh, had reported seeing a man who he said was 27 to 28 years old, wearing a salt-and-pepper jacket, a flat cap, and a reddish neckerchief. A decade later, the 1881 census shows the family living at number 13, Newnham Street, uh, about 400 metres southeast on Goodman's Fields, isn't he? A block uh, that way from where we are right now. Now, Albert, uh, now aged 21 by this point, was living with his parents, two of his sisters, and four male lodgers. Uh, two were Russian, 
uh, where the rest from? Uh, one was Dutch and one was German. He's recorded in the 1881 census as working as an engraver by that time, engraving copper plates for banknote printing. His older sister, Augusta, for whatever reason, isn't mentioned in the census. She might have been living elsewhere. In 1884, she married a man called William Collinson in Lambeth. Uh, his younger sister, Emily, was also married in 1884 in Whitechapel to a man named Samuel Schillingford. There's a couple of uh, census reports here as well. There's that one there. Is the, uh, that's, the, the 49, yeah, that's the 49 Duke Street census from 1871 with the family living there. The next one should be the Newnham Street census uh, when he moved onto Goodman's Fields. Now, not many books uh, tend to report a great deal about Albert Back, but a number of uh, better accounts, I suppose, seem to find him interesting, but largely only report that he argued with Coroner Baxter after turning uh, at Francis Coles' inquest and that he was a member of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But some of the better accounts that do mention him uh, state that he first appeared in the newspaper in 1887. That's wrong. He actually uh, made a great deal of newspaper reports, uh, largely through his long list of court appearances, arrests, and uh, strange and bizarre incidents. So here we go. Now, he first appears uh, to have appeared in the newspaper in November 1885 while working as a, a canvasser for Conservative Party politician Phineas Cowan. After uh, some disorder at a meeting at Berkhamsted Town Hall, uh, he'd gone to court to complain that he'd received letters threatening him with death and that all of his windows had been smashed by radicals and socialists. It would appear uh, that he'd uh, not bothered to inform the police about this, however, and, told the, magistra and the magistrate told him uh, to go to the inspector and tell him about it. He was then back in the paper again on Valentine's Day, uh, 1886, after a demonstration in Trafalgar Square on the 8th. He'd appeared as a member of the East End Fair Trade Leaguers, who had advertised that they would seize the occasion uh, from the Labourers League, who had originally organised and arranged the demonstration. The scene ended in scenes of violent disorder. A crowd of thousands of people spilled out of the square and rampaged across the West End, smashing shops, terrorising pedestrians, raiding buses on Oxford Street. Uh, dozens of people were arrested. A year and a half later, in August 1887, uh, he appeared back at the Thames Police Court, uh, to complain that the police were conspiring to bring unfounded charges against him following an altercation in which a female acquaintance had been mistreated by two constables. He claimed that the police uh, had mistaken the woman for a prostitute. He said he'd attempted to intervene and had been assaulted by the police and then dragged along the ground before they let him go. Whoever these officers were, uh, he was never able to identify them when he was invited to do so. He was then back in court a month later uh, to report the disappearance of his father, who had, according to him, uh, gone missing with several rings, including one large diamond ring, uh, and about £400. He described his father as being 54, but looking 10 years younger, five foot seven, complexion fair, light hair, blue eyes, and with a heavy, sandy moustache. Albert was also described as being uh, a respectably dressed young man. Three months after that, he was back in court again regarding an incident at the Bloody Sunday riot in Trafalgar Square. Uh, violent scenes had taken place on the 13th of November amidst a crowd of reportedly 50,000 people. Uh, Liberal Party MP Robert Cunningham and uh, trade unionist John Burns were on trial uh, for disorderly conduct and assaulting the police, and Albert turned up to give evidence. He claimed that he simply happened upon the riot by chance uh, while heading to visit a friend in nearby Waterloo House, but claimed that he personally managed to witness the pair amidst a crowd of 50,000 people being assaulted by the police and declared that they were innocent. Uh, he proclaimed in court that he had worked hard for Phineas Cowan 
and was ridiculed by the opposing solicitor. Cowan had actually lost his election uh, to Liberal candidate Samuel Montague, and the pair who were on trial, regardless of anything Albert said, were sentenced to six weeks at Pentonville after being found guilty regardless. Now, by 1888... He was 27, approaching 28 years old. He appeared in the press a surprising number of times, made numerous court appearances, uh, and claimed to have received an unparalleled amount of correspondence from the killer. In September 1888, he wrote a letter to the press on behalf of a number of tradesmen and shopkeepers in Whitechapel expressing horror at the murders. Shortly after this, he made his first apparent sighting of the killer uh, on the night of the double event uh, in the Three Nuns Hotel on Allgate High Street. He claimed the man had carried a black shiny bag, so at 5'6 to 5'7, and asked him if the prostitutes outside the pub would go with him down nearby Northumberland Alley off Fenchurch Street. Uh, Albert said he didn't know, but supposed they would, and uh, he said that he had heard they usually went with men to places in Oxford Street, Whitechapel, which is about a, uh, two-thirds of a mile east of the Three Nuns, uh, others to some houses in Whitechapel Road, and others to Bishopsgate Street. His first contact from Jack the Ripper then came when a message was apparently sent to his home via a postcard. It was written in red ink, addressed to Toby Basket, and the sender told him, you only tried to get your name in the paper when you thought you had me in the Three Tons Hotel. I'd like to punch your bleeding nose. On the day of Mary Kelly's funeral, he then claimed that somebody had written, Dear boss, I'm still about. Yours, Jack the Ripper. On the side of his house, but the words were obliterated, he said, before police were able to photograph them. Now, uh, in the time that passed after that, by the 19th of June, 1889, seven months had passed uh, without any particular incident since the, the murder of Mary Kelly. Albert, likewise, had also been laying low. But on that day, he was back in court charged with assaulting butcher Thomas Davis at number 4 Whitechapel High Street. Over a, 4 Whitechapel High Street is where the Lloyds Bank is now on the high street, interestingly enough. He'd entered the shop while drunk, uh, shoved the butcher, who then punched him in return. Uh, he refused to leave the premises. Uh, a police, was, uh, police were called, and he was arrested. He then created a, a giant scene. Uh, he insisted that Davis should be arrested instead. And then at his trial, Davis stated that Albert was... He often came into the shop when drunk, and was often very drunk, especially on Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, Backer was sentenced to five shillings or five days. Uh, a few weeks after his sentencing, in July 89, uh, his next letter from Jack the Ripper arrived, this time warning that he would recommence his work that month and addressing his letter from the Eastern Hotel Poplar. On the 17th of that month, only days later... Alice McKenzie was then murdered and mutilated in Castle Alley. Two days after that, he then claimed to have stopped a murderous assault near Old Getty Station, apparently in Castle Alley again, and actually taken a knife from a man who he said was attacking a woman. The man uh, later claimed that the woman had actually tried to rob him and he'd only drawn the knife in self-defence. Five days after that, he appeared at the Thames Police Court to apply for warrants against two police officers who he believed guilty of perjury, but nothing became of that either. Seven weeks then go by, and the Pynchon Street torso was discovered. Uh, Albert wrote to the press to say that he had been uh, questioned by a number of people about the discovery and know that it was a curious fact in all places where these murders have occurred, the houses are such that any person can enter by pulling a string which lifts the latch. A week later, he wrote to the press again to claim that Lehman Street Police Station had received a letter claiming that the killer was a woman dressed as a man. On the 9th October... He then received a threatening letter to his home from Jack the R before being arrested and appearing back at the court on November 30th charged with uttering counterfeit coins twice on the same day at two pubs and stealing a pewter pot from another. He was acquitted, but his two co-defendants in that case were given prison sentences. 
10 months then go by and he's back at the Thames Police Court again to ask the advice of Mr Mead who would oversee the case against uh, James Sadler after the murder of Francis Coles. He claimed that he'd been writing to the newspapers regarding the Kingsland murders, which is a double murder that had taken place outside of a pub in Kingsland. He claimed a friend of the accused had threatened him and he asked for advice. Uh, Mead told him uh, that if he was threatened again, he could have a summons, but, but that was it. A week later, JTR contacted him again uh, to claim that he was going to do a murder and mutilation in the Hackney area, or the Strand. Five days after that, he then writes to the press to claim that a woman had visited him at his home to report a suspicious lodger at a house on Aldgate High Street. Uh, the man, she'd apparently said, had been writing letters in red ink and sending body parts to George Lusk, had had blood-stained clothes, a white apron blood-stained, a number of brass rings in his room, and had had in his possession a number of various weapons. Uh, the woman uh, was then found by a reporter and uh, interviewed and denied having said any such thing. And when the story made it into the newspaper, uh, Inspector Thomas Arnold uh, had also disputed it, claiming that it was just yet another f uh, nonsense story, which he claimed he had in plenty. Albert was now, by this point, claiming to be the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, uh, but many newspapers were claiming uh, that the members of the committee were now completely unknown. It might seem uh, interesting as well. People often think that he must have joined the, the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee and been a, a member with George Lusk. In one letter he writes, he refers that he's the chairman of the last formed Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, and at the time he wrote that letter, the last formed Vigilance Committee would appear to be the Workmen's Vigilance Committee that was actually formed in the Three Nuns Hotel on Oldgate High Street uh, in October 88, which is the same spot that Albert claimed he'd met and talked to the killer only, only a week before. But um, now, four months then passed anyway, regardless, and on the 29th of June that year, 1891, he then appeared at an inquest into the death of 20-year-old Charles Lawson at the Old Bailey, uh, claiming to have uh, witnessed a fight that killed him. And he stood alone in his belief that the defendant was innocent. Uh, Backer claimed to have been walking by and randomly witnessed the fight. I think I've got a slide here as well. Um, and indeed, the blow that killed him. The following month, on the day following the murder of Francis Coles in July 1891, he then claimed that he'd seen the killer twice with um, Francis, twi twice on the night she died, once outside of Lehman Street Station and another outside of his home. If you don't go home with me, you will never go home with another man, the man had apparently said. His statements, however, clashed wildly with uh, those by others given at the inquest of Francis Coles and those people he would have been entirely unaware of at the time he made his story. Next, uh, he received another threatening letter uh, to his home. This time, the killer claimed his name was GWB and that his name was George Yard. On the 16th of November, he was then back at the Thames Police Court again, this time charged with being drunk and disorderly, uh, having been arrested on East India Dock Road uh, by the Eastern Hotel, which is where he claimed that the killer had written him from uh, in July 1889. He claimed his charges were a conspiracy got up by the police and called many witnesses to claim that police had, had in fact, assaulted him. Uh, the magistrate said he would give him the benefit of the doubt and discharge him. Strangely, though, three days later... He then turns up at St Bartholomew's Hospital as a witness into the inquest of 14-year-old Charles Pewson, who had apparently been killed when a roof ornament uh, fell from the top of numbers 1 and 2 Poultry, uh, not far from St Paul's Cathedral, it's, it's right next to the, the Bank of England. Uh, Coroner Samuel Langham was presiding at that uh, inquest, the same man that presided over Catherine Eddowes' inquest. This was the second time the backer had claimed to have witnessed the untimely death of a stranger in the last four and a half months. He claimed to have gone to the boy's aid, uh, and had to use a handkerchief to wipe the blood from his face and complained that nobody else would help him and he single-handedly saved the day, apparently. 
1892 then arrived, and another letter arrived to his home that January, the sender this time threatening to start work again. Another then arrived in March 1892. This time it was signed AFP, and a coffin and crossbones had been drawn on the letter. Backer went back to court and stood again before Mr. Mead, who had by now presided over the James Sadler inquest, to claim that he knew the author of all the Jack the Ripper letters and asked if he could take him into custody. Uh, Mead told him he was talking nonsense and told him that if he had a complaint, he should go to the police. He was then back at the Thames Police Court on September 3rd, appearing before Mr. Mead again. There we go. Uh, appearing before Mead again, uh, having been arrested again and charged with stealing clothing and his uh, money from his father, which totaled £358.10. His father stated that Albert had stolen the money while he was in another room after packing it into a box uh, before he left for Germany. In November that year, uh, he was then receiving attention in the press as an agitator through his involvement with numerous groups uh, holding meetings at Tower Hill. He was in, involved in a number of marches uh, that London that ended in violence. Uh, in December, he went back to the Thames Police Court again to claim that a Mr Henry Waite, uh, who had been arrested after a fight at Tower Hill, had been arrested unreasonably uh, and appeared again before Mr Mead. Uh, by January 1893, he'd then taken a job with the Tower Hamlets Unemployed Relief Committee, uh, earning 25 shillings a week as a secretary and servant of a man named Harry Wilson. His job was to take all requests for relief to Mr Wilson, who, if they were approved, uh, would, would sign the form and then he would uh, take the form to the tradesman, and then the food would be delivered uh, to the deserving poor. He was described as a good worker, valuable to the committee. On the 14th of that month, however, he submitted a fraudulent order, received food and delivered to a Mrs. Avenel who ran a beer shop. Uh, he was not entitled to do this. Uh, he defrauded the committee, and a warrant was then issued for his arrest. But when they went to arrest him, they found he'd actually done a run up and he'd moved to Bristol unannounced, uh, but he was quickly exposed there when, upon arriving, he wrote a letter to the newspaper stating his intention to rally the unemployed and including his full name and new address in the letter. This was then discovered by H Division uh, police, who sent an officer up to arrest him. Albert, at his trial, was reported to have told uh, Mrs Avenel to ignore the police. They have come here on the bounce, he said. I have ignored them before, and I will again. He was described as an engraver, uh, engraving copper plates for banknotes, and he was convicted and sentenced to three months in prison. Upon his release, he then went back to court again and complained that he'd been unfairly treated. He claimed that he'd been asked uh, to stand for Parliament, but that his conviction had thoroughly ruined him and claimed that a fund had been raised to send him abroad to America. The magistrate uh, said he wished him his best for his life in the new land, and after that, nothing more is known about him. Now, at this point... Oh, give me one second. Right, at this point, I'll actually show the, uh, the slides of the women who uh, were reported as being attacked in the area. There's, there's, there's a few more, but there's three of them here. The next one, there's that one there. Uh, there's the... We'll give that a second for people to get your eyes over. Everybody got it? <laughs> I'll give it a minute. Is everybody happy with that? Got it? Uh, there's, there's another one. There's the next one. Yeah, there we go. Have we got my in the way? You see it? And there's a, well, I mean, when, when people have 
I have a chance to read it. There's a third one as well. Is everybody okay with that? Yeah, and the third one? Ooh, oh, I'm, I'm uh, skimming ahead too far. Skip back. Was that three altogether? Have we gone through three there? Or was that two? Was it skip, skip back? I'll show you those three. Back another one? No, there we go. There, there's the first one. That's... Um, We've done that one. We have another middle one, have we not? Skip, skip one back again. All right, there we go, there we go. Yeah, so that's the, that's the homeless woman that was attacked on Dorset Street. They said he was wearing a, a freeze blue, like a, like a suede uh, overcoat. Everybody got that? Right. <laughs> right, if we skip one on then, because then the next one, right, leave it there for the moment, right? So, um, right now, for the first, uh, for the, the, the final part of this speech, rather, I'm going to be referring uh, to a number of profiling studies uh, conducted by a number of sources, including uh, the FBI, uh, Roy Hazelwood, John Douglas, uh, and a study in particular that was conducted uh, by the FBI between 1979 and 1983. Uh, dozens of convicted sex killers and serial killers uh, were questioned. And the, uh, the data I'm referring to uh, is from that study. Now, there, there are a number of reasons why Albert Backer's behaviour... That's a Jack the Ripper tour going past that side, isn't it? <laughs> now, there are a number of reasons why Albert Backer's behaviour throughout his life is suspicious and why he can be uh, reasonably be suspected to be the Whitechapel murderer. Uh, the FBI reports that killers who leave disorganised crime scenes typically live close by and commit the crimes within their own geographic area. Uh, whoever the Whitechapel murderer was, uh, to escape through the dimly lit back streets, he was clearly, in fact, familiar with the area. Albert had been born in Whitechapel. He grew up in the area, and by the time of the murders, he knew the area very well. Uh, living on Newnham Street since 1881, two of his sisters were married and gone by 1884, and when he appeared in court after his dad charged him for stealing... It was stated that his parents were, in fact, living at number 40 Whitechapel High Street, which left only Albert and perhaps his 24-year-old uh, sister Flora at that address if she hadn't moved on uh, somewhere else as well. The 1888 electoral roll lists him as living in a single room on the first floor, and as such, it appears that he was living by himself when the murders took place. There's a slide here. Right, now, Albert's home on Newnham Street was very close to all of the murder sites. Uh, Swallow Gardens was the closest by... Uh, and the final offence at, uh, at 195 metres away. Box Row was the furthest from his home. It was 1,260 metres away. Uh, after the murder of Martha Tabram, he may have deliberately picked a spot further away to avoid attention. Um, Martha, uh, sorry, Mitre Square uh, was directly behind the house he grew up in, and the spot where Joseph Lavender had made his sighting uh, was only seven doors away from it. Interestingly, on the night of Emma Smith's uh, murder on Osborne Street, a woman called Malvina Haynes had also been attacked by a strange man in what was described as an attempted murder outside Lehman Street Railway Station. Uh, she spent two weeks unconscious at the London Hospital, suffered a brain injury and a large injury to her scalp, it was said. And when she woke up, she was unable to recall anything that had happened. Uh, she actually lived at number 29 Newnham Street, eight doors away from Albert, and was similarly attacked only one street over from his home. His home was also uh, directly between the murder sites of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. The sites are a 12-minute walk apart, uh, but it seemingly took the killer 38 to 48 minutes to cover that distance to avoid uh, witnesses in the street. Whoever had killed Elizabeth Stride must have ran south into Fairclough Street and had avoided P.C. Smith on his beat to the east. Witness James Brown 
had seen a man talking to Stride uh, by the board school in a long coat that came nearly to his heels, which is a different description uh, that Joseph Lavender gave at the end of Church Passage. But both men described a man of similar height and signature characteristics of both crime scenes show that the killer of both women was indeed the same man. At the time of the murder, he was also 27 to 28 years old, which is exactly the age that Joseph Lavender had given of the man he saw standing by the entrance of Church Passage when Catherine Eddowes was murdered. If Backett had killed Elizabeth Stride, um, if Baggett had killed Elizabeth Stride, he would have ran into Fairclough Street and west to get back to his home via the deserted back streets, missing witnesses, missing PC Smith and police on Commercial Road as he did so. Having left the scene between 12.48 and 12.58 by Dr Blackwell's findings, he would easily have made it home within minutes, perhaps two minutes, um, before the body had even been discovered. He would not have been seen by police in the streets either when the search for him began. Had he changed his coat, uh, swapped the knife that killed Catherine Eddowes with a different described one that would then... um, Sorry, if he'd swapped the knife that killed Elizabeth Stride for the one that would then kill Catherine Eddowes that were both described as being different and then headed out again, it would have taken no more than a few minutes to make his way in the opposite direction to Mitre Square. He could have spent up to half an hour at home before heading back out again. Now, a physical description of him hasn't emerged, but when he appeared in court to report his father missing... He was described as being five foot seven, with a fair complexion, light hair, and a sandy moustache. Lavender's man had stood five foot nine, with a fair complexion and a fair moustache, and the son of German, Im- which the son of German immigrants, it would appear that he would also have fitted the killer's Eastern European appearance description. Now, whoever, are we going to go now? There we go. Oh, hang on, back, back, back. We were skipping on here. Back, back. Next one, back. That one there. Right. Now, whoever killed Catherine Eddowes would appear to have run away from Leadenhall Street and Aldgate as he managed to avoid police who were in both of those areas. He also managed uh, to miss night watchman James Blenkinsop, uh, who was uh, on duty in St. James's... Pl- no, no, sorry, sorry, I'm, just po- <laughs> I'm getting carried away here. Uh, he, he was on duty in St. James's Place there, uh, and it might seem uh, that running northwest into Mitre Street was the only possible way that he could have fled the scene and done that and avoided everybody. From here, now we have the next slide... He would, have run, uh, he would have had to run into either Heneage Lane or Bury Street uh, to cross Duke Street and Houndsditch. He would have then entered Harrow Alley, crossed Middlesex Street, Petticoat Lane, and arrived on Goulson Street via Wentworth Street. It w- he was now, at this point, the maximum distance he could be from both crime scenes and the police in both of those areas. He would have passed the doorway of 108 to 119 Wentworth dwellings, dumped the bloodstained apron to his left, uh, and if he wrote the graffiti he would have written it on the wall in front of him rather than the wall behind him, which is what he would have had to do had he not ended from Wentworth Street. Backer would then have ran to the south end of Goulson Street, crossed the high street, around the final 190 metres back to his home via Half Moon Street. He could have been back home by 1.55 at the latest, which is before most police in the area were even aware of the second murder. Uh, now we've got another slide. You can see there. So that's, you can see on the, on the right there, that's, that's Burner Street. That's Albert Backett's house. There's the white dot in the middle. There's um, Mitre Square, and you can see the, the Goulson Street dot. It would have run straight down along Half Moon Street, maximum distance from both crime scenes. You really would have missed everybody, and you absolutely could have done it. Now, by the uh, 29th of June, 1889, eight months had passed since the death of Mary Kelly with no further incidents, and the killer, whoever he was, was laying low. But similarly, Albert hadn't been up to much either, He hadn't been back to court. He hadn't appeared in the newspaper. Uh, On that day, however, uh, he appeared in court, uh, charged with drunkenly assaulting Thomas Davis in the butcher's shop, and he was sentenced to five shillings or five days. 
He then received a letter from the killer threatening to recommence work that month. Um, uh, within days, Alice McKenzie was then murdered and mutilated in Castle Alley. Having had an uneventful year uh, to that point, he might have felt stressed and or under pressure uh, around that June, July, causing him to act out at the butchers, uh, committing the assault, and triggering his, uh, acting as a triggering factor for his first murder in two-thirds of a year. The FBI notes that 28% of uh, serial sexual killers cite legal issues as a pre-crime stress factor, and conflict with another male accounts for 11%. Uh, Albert was dealing with both of these issues at the time. He was then back in court nine days later to apply for warrants against two H Division constables uh, for perjury. He seems to have had something of a, of a preoccupation uh, with uh, the police, the courts, and the, the legal system. Um, through, he, he made numerous uh, complaints about being assaulted by the police. He made a large amount of voluntary trips to court, all of which would appear to have been completely unnecessary. On many of his trips, he also went specifically out of his way to appear before magistrates who had been directly involved with the Jack the Ripper case, specifically Mr Mead, who had overseen the James Sadler case, uh, Coroner Langham uh, as well, who had uh, overseen the inquest into Catherine Eddowes. Sexual killers who leave disorganised crime scenes are genuinely also found to be socially and sexually incompetent. As a grown man from at least his late 20s, uh, Albert had continued living either by himself or with his parents, and would seem to have never married. Uh, they're also shown to have a poor or sporadic work history. Uh, the Whitechapel murderer, for example, would, also, would appear to have not had a regular job, as shown by the time he committed his murders. Uh, Martha Tabram was killed late into a Monday night, uh, early, early hours of Tuesday morning. Mary, Ann, uh, Mary and Francis uh, were on Thursday nights, Friday mornings. Uh, Alice McKenzie was on a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Uh, only Alice, uh, sorry, only Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Strike, and Catherine Eddowes were killed on a weekend, which leaves five out of eight murders that were actually committed on the weekday. When Albert was arrested uh, for his drunken assault in the butcher's shop, the butcher stated that he often came into the shop when drunk and was often very drunk, especially on Mondays and Tuesdays. He was able to turn up to inquests on weekdays without being invited. Uh, he regularly uh, rode of his nightly vigilance patrols and made numerous unnecessary trips to court on weekdays too. As such, it would appear he didn't have a regular job to go to either. The FBI notes that half of all uh, serial uh, sexual killers cite employment and financial uh, problems as pre-crime stress factors before the murders were committed. Alcohol abuse is a common trait. 53% uh, cite conflict with parents as a triggering factor too, uh, which are more things that would appear Albert was dealing with all of these issues at the time as well. It's worth remembering as well, though, uh, that he, he showed pre-planning with his stealing of trophies, arriving with his own murder weapon, uh, posing, arranging the crime scenes. Killers who do this have been shown to usually have a high birth order within the family uh, and or be the firstborn son of the family. Albert uh, was indeed John and Georgina's only son, uh, second-born only to his sister Augusta, who would not live with the family since at least 1881. 86% are shown to be assaultive towards adults when they are adults themselves, and 56% to be thieves prone to stealing. And by 1893, Albert had been arrested and charged with both of these offences on multiple occasions, assaulting Thomas Davis in 1889, drunk and disorderly in 1891, stealing from his father in 1892, and stealing from the Vigilance Committee in 1893, which got him three months inside. It's also uh, interesting that a number of women attacked in the area reported having been given fake coins that had been machined round the edge to look more valuable. As a copper plate engraver with years of experience, Albert would have had the tools to do this, and he had in fact been arrested and charged with passing fake and counterfeit coins 
and stealing from two pubs. 68% are shown to be chronic liars, which is something else that he was regularly accused of. Uh, he claimed to have witnessed a particular police assault at the Bloody Sunday riots after happening upon the riot by chance amidst a crowd of 50,000 people. Uh, newspapers accused him of lying when he claimed uh, a woman had told him of a strange bloodstained lodger uh, staying at her house near Allgate Station. Thomas Arnold, he said uh, in the paper that that was nonsense. Mr. Mead told him he was talking nonsense when he claimed at a court appearance to know the author of all the Jack the Ripper letters, and he made numerous claims of seeing the killer and or suspicious events that were then um, completely discredited and contradicted by witnesses at the inquest. He regularly gave different stories of his sightings, depending on which reporter he was speaking to, and during some of these, he has to have been lying. And when he claimed to have met the killer in the Three Nuns Hotel, he said that the man had asked where the prostitutes usually went with men. He said that he told the man that he had heard that some went to Oxford Street, Whitechapel, others to Whitechapel Road, and others to Bishopsgate. So unless he was making it up, it might also appear that he took more than a passing interest in the prostitutes in the area and how they did the business. When he gave his story of, of the bloodstained lodger uh, staying at Allgate High Street, he also claimed that the woman had told him <clears throat> that the man had had several brass wedding rings and a white apron bloodstained. Catherine Eddowes' bloodstained apron had been white, and Annie Chapman and possibly Mary Nichols had had rings stolen from them. He wrote to the press to claim that the houses near the murders could be ended by pulling a string which lifts the latch. This had been the case at number 29 Hanbury Street, and so it would appear that he either had an excellent memory for specific details that he learned through his own exhaustive inquiries, or may instead have been recalling his own events. That's not to mention the large amount of letters he claimed to receive, <clears throat> or the graffiti on the wall of his home. Uh, George Lusk received three letters. John McCarthy's wife received one. Uh, Albert claimed to receive at least eight, and uh, nine including the supposed graffiti on the wall of his home, and that's not counting the letters threatening with death that he claimed to receive in 1885 when he was working as a canvasser for the Conservative Party. Uh, despite all of his claims, he was never uh, called to speak at any inquest. Murderers who inject themselves into the investigation uh, are also shown to follow the investigation and take an interest in the news reports, which is something that Albert clearly did. When he appeared at Francis Coles' inquest uh, and argued twice with Coroner Baxter, he had demanded to be on the jury just as they were about to be taken to view the body in the mortuary. Uh, Coroner Baxter had refused him, and that's what had caused the scene. Uh, during the time he then spent in prison in, uh, and in Bristol, uh, and while he was working for the Relief Committee, no letters arrived at his home, uh, no murders were committed. Uh, when he then complained about his supposed wrongful conviction, he claimed that he was going to travel to America, but nobody by the name of Albert Backett is recorded as having travelled from anywhere to any destination after that time. He's not recorded as having changed his name by deed poll. Uh, he did not uh, go back to prison, uh, join the army. He doesn't seem to have been admitted to an asylum, infirmary or workhouse, and he made no further appearances either in court or in the newspaper. Whatever happened to him after June 1893, uh, there would appear to be absolutely no record of it, and he had disappeared. Interestingly enough, the killer had two. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you uh, for listening to me uh, today. It's been, uh, it's been nice to speak for you all. I think we're going to, are we going to have a, a quick break or something? And then we can, if anybody wants to do questions or whatever, I'm more than happy to do that. Exactly, or, mate. That's right. Yes, Marvellous. Thank you yeah, very much. Well. Thank you very much. Cheers. And uh, that, that was... So if you've got some questions now, we're going to put them to Mick. Mick, I think Kieran has got a question. Interesting talk. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, what made you um, uh, Albert Backer in um, 
in more detail, I mean, he seems to me to be like a, a bit of a nuisance, a bit of a yeah. busybody. What, what was your, you know, the first inkling of, of going for Albert Backer? What, what did you look for? Did we, when, I, when I first started uh, researching to write a book, I was originally, Lindsay, I was, I was originally uh, researching George Chapman, which originally I did. Not that I thought, oh, yes, it's him, but I thought he's a strange character in the area, and I thought if it is him, my plan was to find a load of stuff that other people maybe hadn't found and determine once and for all if it was him. And then the more I did the research on him, the more I started to think, I don't think it's this guy after all. And then he is Albert Backett, and he just crops up, and then you're doing some more research, and he's in the paper again. And I've always, I've always read profiling books and serial killer books, and he just keeps popping up. And I thought, that's strange. Uh, yeah, that's strange as well. And then the more I found out about him, the more I thought... This guy is certainly worth researching, and the more stuff you find out about him, he just seems to tick every box. So it was just a number of... When I first found out that he'd appeared at Francis Coles' inquest, and he demanded to be on the jury just as they were about to be taken to view the body in the mortuary, and then threw a big strop in the courtroom when they wouldn't let him do it, I thought, that's strange behaviour. Where does this guy live? And then before I actually found out that he lived on Newnham Street, my main problem with George Chapman was where he lived. I thought the killer... Surely has to live somewhere in this area, and then when I found out him, I thought, "Where does he live?" And he, and he lives right in the middle. And then from there on, it, I, it's just been a case of researching him, and he just seems to get more and more questionable. Okay. Thank you very much. Has anyone else got a question? Ah, everybody, everybody wants questions. I think uh, over here first. <clears throat> You said that um, he went missing. Mm-hmm. Um, you said, and you also said that his sisters got married. Did you not carry on tracing them? Uh, I, I, I did, but then records seemed to be kind of missing. The, like the idea was, I did think maybe you could find somebody who's strolling around now, and he's directly linked to him. And it starts to get pretty complicated. It's like I found because um, his, his sister Augusta married William Collinson. They had a son that they interestingly called Albert. I thought that was interesting. Um, so he was Albert Collinson. After that, it, it starts to become extremely difficult. There seemed to be a surprising number of Albert Collinsons in the area, so it was kind of... Uh, I haven't gone so far as to trace all the way to the modern day, but I, I've, I've traced his basic family tree within a generation either way, if you see what I mean. OK, thank you. Thank you. More questions? Just going to go down there. <laughs> I'll, c- I'll come back up here. Everybody wants questions. <laughs> it's Mr. Beadle. Mr. Beadle. <laughs> uh, Mick, brilliant talk, I thought. Absolutely Thank you. first rate. Thank you. Just one thing you might want to address, though, mm-hmm. is that Douglas and Hazelwood both said that the Ripper would not have injected himself into the case that he would have shrunk mm-hmm. from his own infamy. <clears throat> they did. It was, uh, it was John Douglas in, in the, the FBI profiling. He also said as well, though, uh, they lived on Flower and Dean Street. Roy Hazelwood uh, said that um, uh, Catherine Eddowes had a knife incision up her back. And it was like, so I thought, uh, I thought uh, I've got a huge respect for those guys, but I did think they'd maybe taken a kind of cursory look at the case rather than gone into in, in so much detail. But, um, hmm. Right, Mike? Yeah. 
One quick one, Mick. What was the demise of Albert? What, what happened to the, the final? I've, did you did you ever read anything of where he went? Or what happened to I, him? I can't find him. I, I searched all the uh, the, the every, every shing record because he said he was going to America. So I searched uh, as far as much as I could to find any uh, shipping records to America. I can't find them. Uh, there's nobody by the name of Albert Backer that I can find sailing from any port anywhere. Um, after 1893, I searched. He, he didn't change his uh, name by deed poll. I found a register that lists everybody up to 1910 uh, by deed poll. Uh, he's not listed in there. I can't find that he went to prison, went to an asylum, joined the army. It seems anything, if, if you could find anything that happened to him after that point in 1893, it's news to me. He's, he's a ghost. Hmm. I know we've got another question over here. Uh, firstly, just a uh, it's not really a question. The Oxford Street, did you assume that was like West End Oxford Street? Uh, no, I, I, on the original map, it's now called... Stepney Way. It, it, it's, it's out, it, it, it's basically, uh, I can't remember what it's called now. If, if, um, if you, it's Stepney Way. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll totally take your word for it. It's absolutely in that area, yeah. It's, it's something like two-thirds of a mile uh, east of the Three Nuns and uh, Newnham Street. Yeah, it, 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 I'm sure it is Stepney Way, yeah. Oh, I was just checking. The... the um, Hanbury Street, you said it had a, a, a string on the latch, 29 Hanbury Street. I haven't it, heard that before. It, to be honest, this, this, there's a disaster going on over there. It was uh, John Davis had said that, uh, he'd actually said that anywhere that knew where the latch was on the door, they said you, if you knew how to open the door, you, you could get in. And he said he'd, he'd only lived there two weeks, but he said he'd never seen a lock on the front or back door and that anybody knew how to lift the latch could get into the house. So he, he didn't actually mention a string but it was the fact that he'd said anyone that knew how to open that, and then back it had also said. So I, I did look for anybody specifically to mention a string at Hanbury Street, but it was the fact that he'd said, yeah, if you knew how to open the lock, and then back it had basically said the same thing. All right, just another quick one. Is it all right? Oh, that's fine. The, um, <laughs> the apron, um, you said that he left the apron on his way back from uh, Mitre Square, did a, like a loop. Mm hmm and then left the apron and went to his place at Newnham Street, wherever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, so you presumably don't think that, was it, PC Long said it wasn't there, so you presumably think he missed it. I, I think, because he, he, he went past at 20 past two, didn't he, and, and he, he noticed nothing unusual. Back around the beat, and then at five to three, he said he found the apron and the graffiti. I think, I, I think he has to have missed it. The, the only other option is that there's some guy managing to miss the police in the area, suicidally strolling around with organs in his hands, covered in... I, I think P.C. Long... P.C. Long was actually... He was uh, dismissed from the police in 89 as well uh, for being drunk on duty. Not that I'm suggesting he was at the time, but I think, in the dark, I think he, he's missed it. And he said by the second time he came round, by that point, he said he'd heard of the murder in the city and had heard rumours of another. So I, I, I do think, yes, he's walked past the 20 past two, missed it, and then coming back round, possibly more on the lookout, having heard of a murder... Uh, as then discovered it there. Thank you. Julian. Yeah, getting back to this question of him inserting himself into the case, you know, mm -hmm. to satisfy his narcissism or whatever, uh, if, that is, if that is true, would that be unusual or even unique for a serial killer to do that? Uh, or can you cite other examples of... Uh, it would depend on the uh, particular serial killer. I mean, off the top of my head, uh, there was an Austrian guy uh, called uh, Jack Unterweger, uh, he's, he's the Austrian ripper, if you like. Uh, he actually worked um, at the newspaper, and what he did is he was committing his murders, 
then he'd go out of his way. He would turn up at the crime scenes, he would get all the evidence, and he was actually writing reports in the newspaper on his own murders, and people didn't know it was him. There's a guy called uh, Marcel Petio, is uh, a French killer from the 40s or 50s, uh, and what he did is he, he was actually, uh, he was the murderer, there was a serial killer on the loose, he killed at least half a dozen, uh, and then he joined the police force and managed to work his way onto being on part of the team that was investigating the murders. And at one police meeting, uh, he'd been saying something and he'd mistakenly dropped in some detail that the police didn't know and only the killer could have, and then it was clear that it was him. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it depends. <laughs> I think a real downer on his day, that kind of thing. But it was... Uh, <laughs> I think it, it depends on the killer. You'll see, you'll get, you'll get some people, and they might do the murders, and depending on his psychology, he might not even read the papers, he might not look at the news. He did what he did, and he's got no interest in anything after that. And then other people will obsessively have a, a scrapbook or a diary, or today, the, you know, they might keep everything all the... I mean, today it might be, you know, internet files, news reports. Uh, so it depends on, on the killer. Some will and some won't. But some have been shown to go out of the way to inject themselves in, and some others just seem he's done the deed and he, he pays no attention. Ah, that, Sue, there's another question over here. Sean Gillis, actually. You've got, you've got the, a lot of questions, <laughs> and I say that's a really the, good sign, you know, Mick. The Baton Rouge guy uh, that was the ripper I mentioned as well, when they arrested him, he actually had a scrapbook, uh, not just of his uh, crimes, but of, uh, of another guy as well called Derek Lee, who was a serial killer at the same time in the area, and he, he kept everything. And so when he got there, he had it all alphabetised and everything. He had the whole lot. Excellent talk, Mick. Thank you very, very much. Thank that, you. That, that was brilliant. Uh, following on, really, from Melissa and, and Mike's questions about, you know, what happened to him after 1893, can we just clarify the spelling of Backert? Was it with an H on the birth certificate, but later reports it changed to a K? Yes. Uh, his, his, his birth certificate and the, um, the official documents in the census reports are B-A-C-H-E-R-T. Uh, later on, in uh, different newspaper accounts. I think where he's just somebody's just said his name's Backett and somebody's put uh, B-A-C-K-E-R-T. At some points he actually spells his name like that as well. I've also seen uh, B-A-C, uh, sorry, B-A-C-K-H-E-R-T. But again, these in, in the, the proper one is B-A-C-H-E-R-T. Okay. But then some others spell it wrong. And, and his first name is William or Wilhelm, or is it Albert? Uh, it's Albert, but he was christened as... Was it Wilhelm Albert? Albert Wilhelm Albert Backett, I believe he was okay. christened as. Okay. But, yeah, he's always referred to... He, he's, uh, his birth yes. thing, where is it? Somewhere, I've got all the sheets in the wrong order. Yeah, he's, he's listed as Albert William Backett on his, on his birth certificate. Lovely. Thanks very much, Mick. Thank you. All right, so thank you very much, Mick. Ah, another question... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll have to. I'd, we're going to have to. I'm not sure what slide number it is. It's a, it's a way back. Maybe 20 odd slides back. I think. No, the other way. Other way. That's George Metesky's. I was waiting for somebody to tell me that uh, profiling doesn't work, and I was ready for you. <laughs> <laughs> he was the mad bomber in the 40s. They caught him with profiling. That one there. There we go. Yes, uh, I thought that. that. So you see the date. She's, wear she's wearing leggings. Mm. Uh, there's also other ones as well that I thought were interesting, where it's like the Virgin Mary, uh, and she was constantly depicted as, uh, as crying blood. And I thought with the eyelids cut through of Catherine Eddowes and the Cramheads, I'm just, I've got no basis to put that on anyway, but I thought the fact that she's always seen as crying blood, that, regardless, was a, a very common uh, depiction. In the, but I thought she's on her back... 
hand like that, head to the side. She, she is actually posed in that position like um, Alice McKenzie, Francis Coles, Elizabeth Stride. It, it's, I'm not putting a lot of weight in that, to be fair, but I just thought it was an example of something that might possibly be an influence. I have no idea. It was on some antique website. <laughs> I think you wanted about 150 quid for it, but I wasn't going to pay it. <laughs> just got another, qu another question. <laughs> <Go on. laughs> the, um, um, you said the, the, the hats left on the floor, you think they're placed in, in a location deliberately rather than just falling off them when he attacked them. Yeah, I, I do. Um, it's why, like, why do you think they were placed? Like, for example, Nick, Polly Nichols's hat was slightly to her side. Why would he sort of place it? Was, it, it, was, it was lying beside a, beside a left-hander or a right-hander. Right right it, it was lying beside a hand, but I thought if the fact she's lying on her back, seemingly posed on her back with the hands to the side and the clothes pulled up, and then the hat, I mean, if, if, maybe in one bizarre instance, it might have fell off and landed next to your hand, but then... Uh, they said the hat with Elizabeth Stride was actually removed and was placed on the ground. The original report said it was placed on the ground. Uh, how could they, how could they tell it was placed on the ground and not fallen on the ground uh, off her head? I mean, I, I wasn't there, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming if... I mean, if, I'm, I'm assuming if I was wearing a big bonnet and I was on the ground and fell off, maybe it would be upside down. Or it's, it certainly wouldn't be lying here. Um, Francis Coles was also said that a hat had been removed and placed. It, 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 would, it would appear to me that he, he's taken the hats off. Especially, I know Catherine Eddowes was tied with strings. I couldn't go for the other ones. But was Francis Coles' hat tied under the chin with strings? Might have been. But it is a recurring thing, though, where they said the hat was off and lying. Catherine Eddowes' hat wasn't actually off at all. It was still on her head, but her hand wasn't across her chest either. So. so we do have a raffle here that we need to pull. Has anybody got a last question? Is that... Oh, yes, we do. You're doing very well, Mick. Well, I got all night. <laughs> was he ever interviewed by the police at all in relation to these murders? In relation to being a suspect? Yes. Uh, not that I can find. He appears to have been mainly seen, from where I can see, as a nuisance. So it's like when, when he's constantly turned up at the inquest, I kind of get the impression everybody rolls their eyes, oh, God, there's Backett again. But as far as I can find, I've, I've not found a thing where he was specifically interviewed as a suspect, but he constantly crops up, he's talking to police, and I get the impression everyone just thought he was a pain and wished he would go away. Right, shall we hand, hand over to the raffle? Ah, apparently we've got time for more questions. Have any of you got any more questions? <laughs> There's always one. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> if there was, I've got another question. Go on, he said that he didn't seem to have a, a regular job, mm -hmm. but he was always down as an engraver. Every time I saw him down on the press reports, he's an engraver every time. Mm -hmm. that, doesn't that suggest he, was, he did have a regular uh, it job? It is, but he, he was also very active with the Unemployed League, uh, and it's the fact that he's, he's constantly... He, 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 he's, he's constantly talking... Uh, I can't even remember what I'm saying. He, with regards to him being unemployed, it would appear that he, he's constantly talking about how he's out late at night giving his street patrols. He's then turned up constantly at uh, inquests and courtrooms during the day without being invited. Uh, Thomas Davis, the butcher who he assaulted, uh, said that he was regularly very drunk, especially on Mondays and Tuesdays. It, it, would, it would appear that he certainly didn't have regular work to go to. And it's like, again, I've never seen an example of... He has an engraving job that he did. He was always described as an engraver, but 
Right. I, I think that is the end of the questions. And that was Mick Priestley with Jack the Ripper, a modern day investigation. I would like to thank Mick for his cooperation in releasing his presentation and also, of course, thank the committee of the Whitechapel Society for their continued partnership with Rippercast in making their bi-monthly guest speaker talks available to the wider public and thereby creating an important historical archive. And a huge thanks to Steve Ratty for being the sound man at this event and making the recording and release of this talk possible. An excellent job as always. Again, Mick Priestley's book is entitled One Autumn in Whitechapel and is available now at his website, ripperworld.net. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com, where you'll find out how to become a member, get information about their future meetings, purchase books, and subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook.org message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.